As you're taking your seats there, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, I wanted to take a moment just to update you. This is our uh, Reveal Sunday. We've uh, started our Future Facility Fund, and we began a campaign, Go Before Us, Lord, a few weeks back now. And uh, I just I have the, the privilege to update you just on how that's going. I know many of you gave so sacrificially last week and really encouraged by uh, what the Lord is doing. So I want to share with you um, what was given last week and what was committed over the next few years. And uh, um, first, just begin with what was given last week. In our special offering last week, um, you as our church family gave approximately $90,000 above above and beyond our general offering. So I just want to encourage you with that, uh, over $90,000. That is by far the most amount we've taken in in any kind of special offering we've ever done. And um, just on top of that, you have also committed to, by the end of 18, uh, to give over the next couple of years, $560,000. And uh, can we just celebrate that maybe as a church family? That's what the Lord is doing. And uh, that, that is so, so encouraging. That'll put us approximately, listen, as, as a church family with our future facilities fund, we've already been socking away money for that over the, the years that we've been uh, growing as a church plant. And that'll put us at around $1.2 million, which is gonna put us, our goal all along has been to raise enough money that will put us in a good financial position to be able to make a move on a piece of property or a facility if something is to become available. And so this is just putting us in a really, really good spot as we look towards the future. We wanna be wise, and we want to be planning for the future, believing that God's going to lead through that, and God is going to provide for our needs. So I hope that encourages you. Just three things. The first thing is this, be encouraged. Be encouraged by how God is moving in this place. Um, and in some ways, that is a, this is an indicator, listen, of how God is working in you and how God is going to work through you. And you need to really receive this as an encouragement from the Lord. God is using you, and he's going to use you greatly as we look towards the future. We believe God is going to use our church in this community. And so you are a big part of that in your contributions. So be encouraged. The second thing is, I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of our church, thank you. Thank you for being willing to partner with us. Thank you for coming alongside us and for for, um, committing so much, giving so generously, giving so sacrificially. We know many of you gave um, in such a sacrificial way, and uh, we just want you to know we are so thankful for that, for the contribution you're making, and praying that God would bless you as you give over the couple, next couple of years, that God will, um, you will reap what you sow, that God will bless you um, both spiritually, listen, and financially for the way that you are sacrificially giving to his work here at the church. The third thing is this, we wanna encourage you, um, as you're giving, that is such an important thing as we look towards the future, but here's, here's what we wanna encourage you with even more so, please be praying. Um, giving is part of the work. Praying is the most important part, part of the work. And we are believing that as we give generously, um, financially, that uh, God is going to continue to give us clarity and wisdom. He's going to lead us to exactly where he wants us to be. And so your prayers are a really big part of that. We want you to know, just please uh, be praying regularly for this, praying that God provides and, and sustains and grows the work of the ministry here. And that as we look towards a facility It's just gonna be so abundantly clear. We want you to know, as we continue to move in this direction, we're gonna keep you very informed Um, in terms of the opportunities that are coming up and the direction that we're we're thinking of moving. You're gonna be very informed because we want you to continue to pray very specifically about where the Lord is leading us. So um, we are trusting that the Lord is gonna go before us. All right, that's the theme and uh, that he's gonna provide. And as, uh, as we continue to pray and seek the Lord for this, and through your faithful giving, our faithful giving, God's gonna really bless this work. God's getting us ready. 
We believe that with all of our hearts. God's getting us ready for more in the Durham region. And we believe a future facility is gonna help us accomplish more in this place. Uh, speaking of getting ready, uh, who's ready to get into God's word? You ready to go? All right, I thought so. Let's, uh, let's get in there. Let's, let's look at God's word. I, just, I want you to just to grab a hold of that concept for a moment of getting ready. I think, isn't it interesting, this time of year, probably the most popular question when you get into a conversation, maybe even this morning, one of the most popular questions this time of year is this, hey, hey, are you ready for Christmas? Are you all ready for Christmas? And uh, yeah, if you're anything like me, the answer is no, uh, not even close. And uh, by that, we, we generally mean, right, like, are you ready? You have all your presents, you have things wrapped yet, you have your plans all sorted out, you know, you got all your food preparation started or at least thought through, and uh, some of you are further down the road than others in being ready for Christmas. We, we generally speaking, when we ask each other that question, we're talking kind of in the physical sense, in the planning sense, are you ready? But I wonder in the busyness of the season, in the chaos of the Christmas season, if you pause and ask yourself that question spiritually. Are you ready? Are you ready spiritually for a Christmas that will be honoring to the Lord, a Christmas that will be filled with meaning and purpose and intentionality? Are you ready for Christmas in the most important sense, the spiritual sense? I think it's incumbent upon us as followers of Jesus Christ to ask ourselves and ask each other that question. It's interesting, as we look at Matthew's gospel, he begins in a very fascinating place, and in a place that we often glance over, we rush through, and we fail to see why it's there in the first place. This morning, I want to unpack for you the genealogy of the birth of Jesus Christ. Some of you are already going, oh boy, this is not the right Sunday to come to church. But I want to encourage you, this is so important. It's fascinating to me because Matthew begins his gospel with this genealogy of Jesus Christ and following immediately after the genealogy, this is in the plan of God with purpose and meaning, listen, is the birth story of Jesus Christ. The two are really deeply connected and you ask the question, why? Why does Matthew begin here? What's so valuable and important about the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Well, we're going to get into that this morning, but here's what you need to get out of this. It is intended to be getting us ready for the Christmas story. And I would urge you to consider this morning that it is getting us ready for every Christmas. The truths here, the reality that we see in this genealogy really prepares our hearts to really celebrate Christmas in a right way. So I want to begin by looking at God's word, reading it together, so bear with me as we try to get all these names right. Follow along, beginning in verse one, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, 
And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it, how quickly we can kind of look at that, and maybe even in our own Bible reading, we're quick to, to kind of run through that to get to what we believe is maybe more important. Isn't that true? And certainly following right after this in verse 18, you need to see the word now there. In other words, that this, this entire genealogy is setting up for the birth of Jesus Christ in a very fascinating and important way, in a way that really prepares our hearts. It really gets us ready to rightly understand and rightly celebrate what takes place at Christmas 2,000 years ago. And here's what we need to understand. For us spiritually, getting ready for Christmas requires first that we recognize the basis of Christmas. We need to understand why Christmas is here in the first place, why it's such a massive deal that this child Jesus was born into the world at this specific point in history 2,000 years ago. There is a foundational reason for Christmas. And it doesn't simply begin 2,000 years ago. In the mind of God, it began, began before the world was created. But here we see that we're drawing attention to some very specific points in human history that lay out this foundation for Christmas. The genealogy is interesting because in the past, in the ancient world especially, genealogies, they've always been used to establish rank and power and status you know, people would hold up their genealogy to show you how important they were, their background, their pedigree. And the genealogy was specifically important when you're talking about nobility or royalty. For you to be able to trace your bloodline back to royalty was significant. And it gave you a leg up in your culture and in your society. It gave you the right status. This genealogy is fascinating. You'll notice verse 17, it, it, it tells us that this generation is broken down into some kind of chunks for us, and you'll notice the number there, the chunks of 14. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now you say, well, why is that important? Well, what are those numbers all about? Well, there is a little bit of debate about that, but here's what you can know first. This is not intended to be a comprehensive genealogy. It is a selective genealogy, and that was okay, by the way, in the ancient world. You didn't have to give every single name to demonstrate your pedigree. You just had to give the basic gist. You had to create some links to show the connection. And so here, I think verse 17, in, in one sense, first just reminds us that this is selective, but that's really important. It is highly selective. The people who are selected are very important. And by the way, we're not going to look at every single person. You're like, we're going to be here a long time today. We are going to look at some. We're going to be highly selective as well. 
But this genealogy, just as a, as a broad overview, listen, it's designed by God to highlight two names in particular, apart from, of course, the culmination of all of this, which is Jesus Christ. But the two names that should stand out there in verse one, do you see them there with me? Do you see them? The two names are this, David and Abraham. There is a connection being made through all of this genealogy that needs to link Jesus back to David and then ultimately back to Abraham. And the question that we rightly need to ask is why? What's so important about these two men? And you need to understand this. If you miss that these two men are standing out above all of the rest, you really miss everything about the genealogy of Jesus. You miss its entire importance. So, So what's so important about these two men? Well, Really, something very basic, two promises. God made a promise to each of these two men at different points in history. They stand thousands of years apart. God initially, in the book of Genesis, specifically in chapter 12, shows up to Abraham, who is, by the way, a pagan, an idolater, and he shows up and he begins to uh, speak to him. Hold on one second on the verse there. Don't look there yet. Look right here. We're going to get there. He wants to talk to Abraham and he wants to give him a very specific promise. You see, the world around Abraham is broken. Abraham is broken. Everything is a mess. Sin had entered into the world and had catastrophic consequences. God shows up to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and he gives to him what we call uh, the Abrahamic covenant. He makes a promise to Abraham that is incredibly important for the whole unfolding of the Bible and the unfolding of salvation history. Uh, Verse three is gonna be up on the screen now, but I wanna read for you the context. Listen to verses one and two. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And here it is, he gets so specific. He says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He says, Abraham, I know everything's a mess. My blessing isn't on the world right now in this sin-cursed world, but my goal is to take you and through you, I am going to bring about a solution to the massive sin problem in this world. And through you, listen to this, this is a global promise, all of the world will be blessed by me. See, he's pointing towards a future descendant of Abraham. He promises that this descendant will have a global impact Paul actually calls this promise that was made to Abraham in Galatians chapter three, verse eight, he actually calls this in a broad sense, the gospel. And over time, with further revelation, God made this promise even more specific. You see, the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant, it actually keeps funneling forward and it gets narrower and things get more specific as God reveals more truth. And we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God speaks to David, David the king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. He sits on on the throne of Israel and he depicts a ruler that rules righteously, a, a man who loves God with all of his heart, but he still too is a sinner. He too cannot be the hope for the world. God makes David a promise in 2 Samuel 7 
verses 12 and 13, listen to what he says. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see this promise getting more specific. Not only a descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations will be blessed, but he will be a descendant of David, a king like David who will usher in a kingdom that will never be shaken, a kingdom that will last forever where righteousness and justice will rule over the earth. Everything will be fixed. Everything will be made right. The blessing given to Abraham will come through David. So why is this so important? What what, what is being said here? Matthew is showing that Jesus can trace his lineage all the way back to David. Did you catch that there? He has to be in this line. You can't just kind of impose him into the picture. He has to be of this righteous bloodline, this noble bloodline, this kingly bloodline. And so Matthew's painting this picture. Don't you see how he's connected? He is the promised Messiah. That's what you need to see. He is the fulfillment of the promise made to David and the promise made to Abraham. He's the one we've been waiting for. You have to think for thousands of years, the Jews up at this point had been waiting for this Messiah. Where's the one? Where's the one who's gonna bless all of the nations of the earth? Where's the one who's gonna rule and reign with righteousness? Where's the one who's gonna establish his kingdom that will never be shaken? Where's the one who's gonna make all of this right? And here, here Matthew's making it very clear. He is here and his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. And I just think we need to pause. And then getting our hearts ready for Christmas, listen, it involves understanding this foundation Christmas is founded upon a promise that God made thousands of years ago to a man named Abraham, and Abraham never saw the fulfillment of that promise in his lifetime. In fact, it would take millennia for it it to get anywhere close to being fulfilled. David, too, knew that God made a promise to him, but he, too, never saw it. I mean, it's very clear in the the Davidic covenant that he wouldn't even see this in his lifetime. One of their descendants would be a blessing to the entire world. He would be a righteous king. His kingdom would have no end. And I I think this is important because we know what it is, don't we, to make a promise in a human sense and to break it? We certainly know this. We know what it is to have somebody make us a promise, to trust somebody, maybe very deeply and meaningfully, and to have a promise that has been made to us broken. We know the weight of that. We know how that feels. Some of us have been really deeply wounded by promises broken. And at Christmas time, I think it's important to just understand that when God makes a promise, he never, ever breaks it. See, the very foundation of Christmas is founded upon the reality that our God is faithful. Our God keeps his promises. And though it may seem like a long time in a human sense, our God always keeps his promises and they're always kept on time. God made a promise and he has kept it. And Christmas proves that to us. Our God can be trusted. So when you get your heart ready for Christmas, when you look at the foundations of Christmas, just remember that your God is faithful and he can be trusted. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's great promise to bless the nations. It reminds us that God came to fix what was broken, that God can take the most difficult problem in the universe, and he, he alone can make it right. That's why getting ready for Christmas requires that you reflect upon the blueprint of Christmas. 
We're intended to understand the basis, but we need to reflect upon the blueprint. In other words, how did God bring this about? And that's what we see in the genealogy. It's like he's putting the pieces together for us so that we understand how he has orchestrated this entire thing. Getting ready for Christmas, I believe, in a spiritual sense, requires intentional reflection on our part. Like I mentioned before, um, this is a selective genealogy. It's highly selective. It's very carefully organized. Some people wonder why it is so neatly packaged and organized, and and there's been a lot of uh, reasons given, but most scholars generally agree on this reality. The reason why it's kind of prosaically presented the way it is, and it's structured so neatly with 14 generations and 14 generations and 14 generations, was for one simple purpose, so that it could easily be memorized and then be meditated upon. In a culture where most people didn't have copies of books, they were dependent upon um, memorization and and just saturating their minds with the truths that were important. And so you can just see the intention of God. He wanted his people to know this. He wanted them to ingest it, and then he wanted them to digest it. That's what meditation is. It's taking the truth in, and then it's extracting all of the nutrients out of it. It's seeing how, or see how and why they matter for me. And there's a sense here in which that is being demonstrated, apart from pointing to the reality that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David, it points us to some other realities. It's supposed to matter for us personally. As I mentioned to you before, in ancient times, similar to today, and and certainly over the years this has been true, genealogies were meant to legitimize your place in a community. To prove your bloodline was a very important thing, and very valuable. It was used again to establish rank, power, and status. You know, people would often you know, hold up their genealogies in the ancient world and they say, look, look, here's my bloodline, don't you get it? I come from a long line of awesomeness, right? I'm really, really important. I come from a long line of intellectuals. I come from a long line of athletes. I come from a long line of really important people and so therefore, I too am important. It was so important in the ancient world that similar to today, people would often doctor their genealogies. They would would scrub up their genealogies, they would want them to look really nice and clean and and take off kind of all of the black spots of a genealogy. You know, we sometimes do that in our families, right? You you have a, a family picture, maybe your kids are scouring through some old photos and they find a picture of somebody they've never seen before and like, hey, who's this? Oh, we don't talk about Uncle Jim, all right? Just put that away. You know, we, we avoid talking about the bad spots in our family. Nobody's walking around celebrating that their family comes from a long list of thieves or cowards, right? They promote what they value most and what they think is going to give them credibility. This is kind of, this, you know, people's genealogy in the ancient world was kind of like their Facebook feed, right? Hey, here's all the awesome stuff you need to know about me. I'm not going to tell you any of the bad stuff. It's all positives, which, by the way, is what makes this genealogy so shocking. That the shocking part of this is not who he takes off of the list, but who he leaves on the list. If you and I were making our genealogies, I'm telling you right now, if you were to inspect these people, we're gonna do a bit of that this morning, you would not put half of these people on there, maybe not any of them. 
It's, it's appalling when you begin to look behind the curtain and to see who some of these people really were. It's as if the Spirit of God is putting them there on purpose. And so I want to get into those people. Who, who is on this list? What lessons can we learn about the people on this list? And what does it tell us about Jesus Christ? That's the most important question. And I want to look specifically at four women who are on this list. Four women, and that might not seem strange that there are women on this list in today's climate, wouldn't seem strange at all, but you need to understand this. This is startling and radical in the ancient world. A Jewish or Greek genealogy would, generally speaking, have no women on it. It was a patriarchal society. They tracked their bloodline through men, not through women. That's what they cared most about. In both Greek and Jewish culture, a woman had no legal rights. She could not inherit property or give testimony in a court of law. She was completely under her husband's authority. She was seen less as a person and more as a thing. The Jewish man thanked God each day that he had not been created a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. That's not in the Bible, by the way. And yet here are four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that are highlighted for us to be aware of, and it's peculiar. The, the women that are highlighted are strange, but you need to see this. It is so purposeful on the part of God himself. It's not just that they're women that makes this so intriguing. It is the stories that surround each of them and what they're intended to teach us. So notice with me, verse three, we'll look at the first women. It says this, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, I promise you, if you go home and you pick up your children's Bible and you look for the story of Tamar, you're not going to find it in your children's Bible, right? It, it, it is, it's just not there. It, it is an unbelievable story. When you're reading through the Bible, you're like, really? Is this really in here? Tamar is a fascinating character. She was a Canaanite which means she was not a Jew. And Jews, by the way, were forbidden to intermarry with Canaanites. So you can just imagine her. She's already non-Jewish. She's an outsider on the outside looking in, but she marries an insider. She marries the oldest son of Judah. Judah from the tribe of Judah through whom the Messiah would come. Judah had a uh, some sons, and what we know is this, that Tamar, she marries the oldest son of Judah. The Bible doesn't tell us too much about her husband, but what it does tell us, tells us is absolutely staggering and fascinating. She married a man who God says is wicked and evil. In fact, he's so wicked and evil, there's basically nothing else said about him, but God himself strikes him dead. That's how evil he is. And in this culture, if you're a, a widowed woman and you have no children, you're really in a bad spot. You lack, you're, having children solidified a secure place in the life of a family and a home for you. And so here is this woman, Tamar. She is without child. She's got a, no husband to provide for her, and she's got no reason for anybody to provide for her. Now, Jewish law said this, that if a woman was widowed with no children, then her, the, the brother of her former husband would then have to marry her and provide offspring, give her a place in the society and culture. It, it secured her, it protected her, it was incredibly valuable. And so Judah says, okay, you can, you can marry my next son, he's not married. And so, uh, so she takes him to be, uh, he takes her to, to be a wife and um, the Bible tells us that he too is so wicked and so sinful that God kills him as well. So here she is again, still barren, left all by herself, She's 
she's grasping for something. This, you have to imagine the place this puts her in as a woman in this culture. It's terrifying. It's frightening. She has nothing. And so she goes to Judah and she says, look, look, you have another son and, and you, know, you, know, you know the law. And, and so he says, okay, my, my son's still too young to get married, but I'll tell you what, when he comes of age, um, you can take him to be your husband. And the Bible actually tells us that in his heart, he, though he said that with his lips, he was determined not to do that. And so time passes and he's old enough to marry and yet here she still is, unmarried and barren and so she figures that she would take matters into her own hand and she knows that she's not getting what was promised to her so here's what she does. She knows that Judah is going on a journey so she dresses herself up as a prostitute and veils her face and she waits outside the city that Judah is traveling to and by the city gates and as he comes by, he propositions her and he essentially hires her to sleep with her. And here's the problem, he has no money, he can't pay and so she says to him, she says, I'll tell you what, as a pledge, just give me your signet ring, you know, your family ring that identified you as, as the, the head of this household and give me your staff, two very personal items, two things that would have been associated with him on a very personal level. And so some time passes, he comes back to pay the wage and he finds that she's gone. She's nowhere to be found. So he goes back to life as normal and all of a sudden, a couple months later, you can imagine the scene, here she is living in his household and all of a sudden there's a little baby bump right there. She's not married. Clearly, she's been immoral, and so Judah is furious with this, and he, here's, he actually says, he says, bring her and burn her. Put her to death for her uh, immorality, her sexual impurity, and he condemns her to death, and she walks up to him, and she holds out the signet ring and the staff, and she says, uh, whoever these belong to, he is the father of this child. Uh, busted. And he looks at her and he says to her, in a moment, listen, of humility, caught red-handed, he says, you are more righteous than I. <laughs> this woman is one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And you just have to understand what's happening. And part of you, like you feel, your, doesn't your heart go out to her? She's not being cared for. She's not being protect, protected. She has no real refuge. She's being left to fend for herself in this broken world. Here she is all alone in need of someone to save her. But instead, she takes matters into her own hands. She lies. She manipulates. She commits adultery herself. Judah? <laughs> really? This guy's one of the heads of the tribes of Israel. Judah the hypocrite, right? It's fine. You know, I'm going to curse you and condemn you and kill you because of your adultery. Oh, but mine, I'm quite fine doing whatever I want. You know, it kind of reminds me, Judah does, of what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, a self-righteous prig that goes to church regularly may be nearer to hell than a prostitute. You know, the truth is, both of them should have been condemned. Both of them sinned grievously. Both of them did what was utterly unthinkable and wrong, and yet both of them are in the line of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Tell me you don't want that little blemish scrubbed off of your family tree. That's not it though. Look, look what happens next. The next woman on the list is Rahab. Verse five says, in Psalm and the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, if you know your Bible, you know a little bit about the story of Rahab, right? She too was a Canaanite, and so she wasn't welcomed into the family of God. 
And what's so amazing about her is this, you remember the story, Joshua's going into Jericho, he wants to conquer the, 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 the city of Jericho, these massive walls, and so he sends two spies in to scope out the situation to get the, a feel for what's actually happening there and get some strategy in place, and these two spies go in, and for their own safety, they have to run into this woman, Rahab's house, and here's, here's the problem. Rahab herself is not pretending to be a prostitute, she is a prostitute. She's a prostitute. And by the way, that likely means she was a cult prostitute. So she's associated with pagan idolatry where she gives herself away for money. And these two men find refuge in this prostitute's home. And as they're there, she, she risks her life, and it's so fa- she's heard of the stories of the God of Israel. She's heard what happened to the Egyptians, the mightiest people on the face of the known earth, the God of Israel is so amazing. There's fear and dread. And so she takes in these two spies and she protects them with her life. She hides them. She allows them safe passage. And she just asks them one thing. Listen, I know that your God is great. I know your God. You, you guys are essentially, you're going to come here. You're going to win. I know it. Would you, would you for, for my act of service to you, would you spare me and my family? And you know what's so cool about Rahab? Rahab the prostitute is in Hebrews 11 in the hall of fame of faith. A prostitute. In the hall of fame of faith, just, just think about that for a minute. Think about how we so often are, are capable of looking down our nose at people, you know, judging a book by its cover, thinking some people are unworthy of the grace of God. And here she is highlighted for all eternity for the faith she had. Another prostitute in the line of Jesus. Are you beginning to kind of get the picture here? You see, well, Ruth, she's the next one there. Do you see that? And Boaz, the father of Obed, in verse five, by Ruth. Ruth's not that bad, right? There's not, I, mean, I mean, who doesn't love the story of Ruth? You read in the Old Testament, those amazing four chapters. It's such a sweet story. It really is. It's a really, really incredible story. But what you may not know about Ruth is that she was a Gentile. Ruth was actually supposed to be on the outside looking in. Ruth actually had no business being married to a Jewish person. I mean, that was a violation of Jewish law in and of itself. But here is Ruth, she's a foreigner, and she's not just any foreigner, she's actually a Moabite. You say, well, what, what, what's so wrong with being a Moabite? Well, um, a lot's wrong with being a Moabite. The Moabites traced their lineage all the way back to the incestuous story of Lot. Do you remember that? You know how the Moabites came about? Here's Lot. And Lot is in a cave, and he's got his two daughters. Uh, He's been spared by God, and uh, his daughters devise a plan to have children. And so they say, they come up with this brilliant plan. Let's get our father drunk, as drunk as possible. So drunk, he has no clue what's going on. And let's sleep with our father so we can have some children. And the first child born to the first daughter of Lot is Moab. That's where the Moabites came from wicked, sinful relationship. It's a true, but it's a terrible story. And, and listen, Deuteronomy 23, 3-5 tells us that the Moabites were actually excluded from the, from the assembly of Israel. They weren't allowed to be a part of the worship of God's people ever. Uh, it's not just that they're Gentiles, they had a unique position even among the Gentiles. Here's why, because they refused to give food and drink to the people of Israel when they were leaving Egypt. And God cursed them for that. Ruth was married to a Jew. Um, Naomi uh, had two sons. They 
there was famine in the times of, of Ruth, and they had to go off to Moab to find some food and maybe some work, and, and her two Jewish sons ended up marrying a two Moabites. Their, their husbands died, and so what's so interesting about Ruth is that she comes with Naomi, her mother-in-law, back to the nation of Israel, and she's free to go wherever she wants, and she says, you know, Naomi, your God is my God. I will worship your God. And the, the story of Ruth is a beautiful story. She comes back in, but you need to understand, she comes in disenfranchised. She comes in as an outcast already in the nation of Israel. And she comes in essentially having to place herself in the position of a servant or a slave, unprotected, insecure, looking for a redeemer. And the story of Ruth is a powerful story of this man named Boaz who is years beyond her and who graciously took her in but this woman, Ruth, this outcast Ruth, is in the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then the last woman on this list, in verse 9, it says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. The name isn't even mentioned here. We, all, we know the name, don't we? We know the name Bathsheba. We know the story of David, and we know of the despicable events that took place then. But it's so interesting that every time Bathsheba is referred to after those events, she's always referred to as the wife of Uriah. You ever stop and ask yourself, why? Why? It is a perpetual reminder of the sin. It is a perpetual reminder of the stigma of sin and the consequences of sin. She would forever, and David always had the stigma too. Here is the wife of Uriah. You are married and you have children with the woman who is someone else's wife. And if that's not bad enough, here's what we know. Uriah was a Hittite. He wasn't a Jew himself, which probably tells us this, that this woman Bathsheba was likely to a pagan, gent a pagan, a Gentile. You just have to see all of these were excluded in some way. All of them had massive problems. In the story of Bathsheba, it takes us even a level deeper because here's David, a man after God's own heart. And you know the story, right? Here's David and he's, he's on the top of his home and he's looking out and there he sees this beautiful woman Bathsheba bathing. Now, here's maybe what you don't know. David always gets slammed for this and rightly so. What he did was incredibly sinful. What you may not understand is this, that Bathsheba had a massive part to play in this as well. She had every right to say no. She could have by law said no, and uh, she chose not to. But beyond that, the, the historians tell us that her home was probably about 20 feet away from his. For him to be able to catch a glimpse of her, she had to be fairly close, and she had to be bathing in a manner in which he could see. In other words, there had to be some intentionality because this was not normal. It was not normal. This was a society of modesty. It was a shame kind of culture. You were heavily covered. This was just commonplace. And so what we see here is two individuals who sinned in a massive way. And I just, I just can't help but think, isn't this so fascinating? These are the women introduced into the ge genealogy to prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. Why, why did he choose them? Like, are you scratching your head at this point going like, this, this is insane. One commentator said this, there is no pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. Jesus comes from a bunch of sinners and really bad ones if we're gonna kind of rank them, aren't we? <laughs> And by the way, I don't just mean Tamar and Rahab. I don't just mean Bathsheba. 
And you look at the list here, and there's hardly a single, single person on here that is honorable and righteous and one that we would admire greatly. I mean, just think about even the ones we would. But just, just consider, this has a list of kings on here. And if you, if you just read through your Bible, you read about Rehoboam, read about Abijah, Ahaz, Ahaz, like the wickedest king of them all is in the line of Jesus Christ. And look at the so-called righteous men of old. But just consider Abraham for a minute. This is the guy who at every turn lied about his wife actually being his wife. Like a man who had a hard time trusting that God was gonna be faithful. Judah? Judah. By the way, it was his idea to sell his brother Joseph into slavery. David, the man after God's own heart, steals another man's wife, gets her pregnant, and then tries to cover the whole thing up, kills her actual husband, right? This leader of his army. When we're charging the gates or the the defenses of our enemies, everybody else pull back and leave Uriah the Hittite there to be slaughtered. This is David. Solomon, with his polygamy and idolatry, even Hezekiah, you're like, well, Hezekiah is a good king. He was a good king. Yeah, he thought he was pretty good too. And that's exactly what he got condemned for. You thought your family tree was a mess. It's as if Matthew puts a criminal lineup before us. Why? Because we're supposed to reflect on this. We're supposed to see the devastation. We're supposed to see the sin. We're supposed to see how horrendous this is. We're supposed to see the wickedness and the evil, and it's supposed to sink into our hearts. Matthew isn't trying to cover up the line of Jesus. And one of the reasons why is because, you know, when we, we give credence to the, the negative things, you know, the things that we could hide or we'd want to hide, it's actually one of the greater ways we prove that this is legitimate, isn't it? He is the promised king, and I'm not going to hide anything. I'm not going to, you know, doctor it in my favor. I'm actually going to show you the bad stuff. The reason he does this as well is because it sets the tone for the scandal surrounding the birth of Jesus. Do you think about that? Did you know when Jesus was born, did you know the scandal that was involved? Do you know, the, do you know how, how Jesus was, and his parents, by the way, were ridiculed throughout his life? <laughs> Your mom got pregnant out of wedlock. They weren't even married. That's your mom, Jesus. You know, it's interesting that I think the scandals in the past of Jesus, in one sense, remind us that the birth of Jesus was intended, in one sense, to be surrounded by supposed scandal as well. But there's another reason. There's another reason. You see, this didn't have to include everyone. You just had to give the basic gist. This is, this is my family line. This is my bloodline, so why include the outcasts? Why include these scandalous stories? And by the way, every Jew who would have read these names, they would have instantly known the background. They would have instantly understood the kind of scandalous wickedness, evil behind these people's lives. They would have all got that immediately. And if you were not a believer, you would have looked at this and you would have laughed at where Jesus came from. Well, here's the real 
reason, the final reason, final point for us today. It's getting us ready to rejoice in the blessing of Christmas. You see, as we reflect on these things, what we see is that they all remind us of the condition of this world and the condition of our hearts. Having prepared us through the genealogy for the appearance of the most important birth in all of history, Matthew then tells us who this baby is truly. And he does so with two unmistakable allusions to the Old Testament. And here's what I want to do. I I don't want to unpack this fully this morning. I I simply want to read for us verse 18 through the end of the chapter. This is the birth story of Jesus as Matthew tells it. And I want, listen, with that background, with that preparation, with our hearts already uh, kind of running through all of the scandals, all of the mess, right, all of the sin, I, I want you just to hear this now in a fresh way. Think about this background. Think about, listen, put yourself in there for a minute. Think about you. Think about your background. Think about the world around us. Think about the brokenness in your own heart, even today. Think about that and listen to this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The child is Emmanuel, and he is Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus, the same name as Joshua in the Old Testament, which means God is our salvation. Here the name reflects the mission that he was sent for. He and he alone could save his people from their sin. He says, why? Why inform us? That Jesus did not belong to the nice, clean world of middle-class respectability, but rather he belonged to a family of murderers, of cheats, of cowards, of adulterers, of liars, of deep and wicked sinners. The point is almost too obvious to miss, isn't it? Matthew wants to show us what Paul would later say to us in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. He did not come for those who were healthy. He came for the sick. And I can't imagine, this is Matthew, the one who writes this, he himself, a tax collector, one of the most despised and despicable Jews in the culture and society. He worked for Rome. He ripped the people off. He ripped his own people off. He stole their money. 
deeply hated in his culture, a man of grievous sin. I wonder as he wrote these words, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He thought of how Jesus Christ walked up to him on that glorious day and called him out of his wickedness and sin unto new life in him. Just like Matthew the tax collector, Rahab the prostitute, David the adulterer and the murderer, Judah the hypocrite. Listen, the blessing of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. Every one of these individuals reflects the world around us and every one of them reflects the heart within us. There's a whole list. You know, you can look at this list and you want to know what what comes to my mind? This is a list of damaged goods. This is a list that nobody wants anything to do with. These are the people that nobody will give a shot to. These are the people that have no hope in the world. These are the people who deserve to be outcasts. And that's the way so often the world thinks about sinners. And yet, those of us who know Jesus Christ have come to understand that that is speaking of us. There is nobody, listen, there's, I, I listen, you have to see this. This is all about the grace of God. This is all about the grace of God. There is more grace in the heart of God than there is sin in the heart of any man. This is one of the most beautiful realities of Christmas. You see, getting ready for Christmas is about understanding the significance of the birth of Jesus for you and for me. This list of damaged goods, uh, these individuals had all damaged someone else and damage had been done to them. Listen, this... They've all sinned against others and been sinned against. All of them were outsiders. Many were uh, just encompassed and embraced in scandal, filled with shame and hopelessness. And I believe with all my heart that the world around us is just like that. And some of you are sitting in here just like that. You feel the shame. You feel the helplessness. You feel the insecurity. And listen, rather than doing what some of these others did and trying to fix the problem for themselves, would you see that God was bringing about the greatest solution of all? Paul would say in Galatians 3, 28 and 29, parallels this so well, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You see that in the genealogy, don't we? Oh, it's all about Jews. Only the Jews are worthy of salvation. I don't think so. The whole list of Jesus' genealogy is filled with pagans and Gentiles who too were to receive the grace and mercy of God. There is neither slave nor free, right? God doesn't just choose the the great. Uh, He doesn't exclude the small. He chooses everyone to come to himself. There is no male or female. We see that so clearly. Salvation, listen to me, is open to everybody for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, notice this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Don't you see the blessing to the nations was fully and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the one who would fix our brokenness. When we look at this genealogy, when we consider the Christmas story, here's what you need to understand. These are the kinds of people that Jesus came to save. And I love this thought too. These are the kinds of people that God can use. Sometimes we get to the place where we say, okay, God, maybe you can save me. Some people even struggle with that, but just would you see that God is greater than all of your sin. God can save anybody, no matter how wicked, no matter how sinful, no matter what you've done. Look at the people who are in the very line of Jesus Christ. God can save anybody. There is nothing that is too far gone for him. 
And you say, well, then can God still use me? Look at my past. Look at my brokenness. Look at what I've done to others. Look at the pain I've caused. Look at the pain that's been done to me. Can God still use me? And the answer, I just love this. Don't you see who God uses? God uses broken people. There is no perfect people. Only those of us who have been saved by the grace of God. Through this line of brokenness and pain, God would bring the blessings of pardon and the freedom of forgiveness. But don't miss that Jesus could save his people from his sins only because he became Emmanuel, God, with us. God would come as a baby to be with us by becoming one of us that he might truly rescue and free us. That is what Christmas is all about, and that is why we rejoice. And I just, as we close here, just listen. I think so often we can miss and devalue or just honestly miss the sheer awesomeness of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God became a human being so that he could live a perfect life and that he could die in place of sinful human beings. This is how it had to happen. We needed, you say, how can I be saved? How can God forgive me? You need somebody to take all of your sin and wickedness on themselves, right? Your sin means that you deserve to be punished. Not one of us deserves the grace of God. It is undeserved favor. By definition, it is completely and wholly undeserved. And so listen, our sin needs to be punished. All of this wickedness, all of these individuals, their sin should have been punished for what they did. You and I, we deserve that. And Jesus says this, let me come as one of you, a man to pay for men, a sinless one to take upon himself the sins of humanity. You see, it's this transfer that takes place. He's perfect. You say, well, Jesus is God. That's why he's God. He had to be perfect. He had to live perfectly And then he says, let me take all of your sin upon myself. Let me be treated like I'm a sinner. Let me stand in your place. And God, you punish me for all of Ian's sins. You punish me for all of your sins. And the greatest transfer of all is he takes his righteousness, that perfect life, and he says, listen, now now take all of my righteousness. You have an unearned righteousness if you're in Jesus Christ. You stand before him, listen, robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so you stand holy, acceptable, perfect before him, not because you've done it, not because you've earned it, but because he freely gave it to you. And it's so easy to forget this. I just, this is so staggering. And, and I, don't, I don't get the awesomeness as much as I should. Mary and Joseph held God in their hands. So my mind is blown. This staggering reality is the greatest blessing humanity could possibly imagine because it is the only thing that could ultimately save sinners like you and me. Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on Matthew, he's writing it in the second paragraph of writing on the genealogy. He just pauses in a moment of sheer adoration of what is taking place in the incarnation. And here's what he says, marvelous condescension. He writes that God should be a man and have a genealogy, even he who was in the beginning with God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Marvelous condescension. God has a genealogy. You know, Joseph ends, it's as if Joseph kind of gets it at the end. Did you catch that there? 
He's seeing the unfolding plan of God. He, he's obviously got God clearly speaking to him, and it just, it's, it almost kind of crystallizes at the end, and it says, and he called his name Jesus. Like, that's it. Here he is. Mary and Joseph held in their arms the child who was born to die. But listen, I love that we saying that born, that man no more may die. That life and life to the fullest may be given. They themselves, Mary and Joseph, following in a long line of broken and sinful humanity, were holding in their arms the help to the nations, the promised help that God gave to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They held in their arms the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The promised one said to David that he would come and he would rule and reign. He would bring a kingdom that would have no end and he would be righteous and perfect in his rule. They held him in their arms. This, the great blessing of Christmas, is the very reason we rejoice. Amen, church? This is the reason. And listen, we are not truly ready for Christmas until, until we have looked upon him for our salvation. I just want to take a moment. Some of you in here, you've not looked upon Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you think you're not good enough. Maybe you think that you're not worthy enough. Maybe you think that you've got to earn it or do something special. And God is saying to you today, don't you understand? I came so that you didn't have to do any of those things. I'm holding out to you. You know, you think of Christmas. I'm holding out to you a gift. You don't pay for a gift. You don't earn a gift. It's freely given to you. Now, you just need to take your hands and grab it and receive it. And he says to you, he says, listen, you can truly celebrate Christmas. You can rejoice in the true meaning of Christmas today. Reach out and grab the gift of salvation. Grab a hold of Jesus Christ. See who he is. He is God to come to be with you. God, the one who will come to save you from your sins. And all you have to do, you say, what do I do? What do I do? How do I receive the gift? Listen, repent of your sins before the Lord God Almighty. Just recognize that you should be on this list too. I'm on that list, I'm undeserving. Then look, then look to the cross. Listen, the cradle always pointed to the cross, okay? Always pointed to the cross. The greatest mystery is not necessarily the incarnation. The greatest mystery is the fact that God would die for us. And right here, right here, God says you can take the gift, repent of your sins, and embrace the free gift of salvation. Take me, have me, and receive life to the fullest. Christian, let me speak to you for a minute. You're a follower of Christ. You love Jesus Christ. Listen, you, you too need to be ready for Christmas. And you cannot be ready for Christmas, not in the truest sense, until you are reminded of your salvation, until you are reminded of the grace of God, until you've found your heart even now in this moment looking towards Christmas with a great source of joy, not because it's the season is fun and not because the lights are pretty, listen, but because the light of the world came to give you life eternal. That's when Christmas is meaningful and that's when we know we're ready. Our heart is rejoicing within us because of the gift of salvation. 